Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. This is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Jalnina, your host today, and we are recording this interview in partnership with Community in Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Today, we'll be talking to Lydia Manzo about her new book, Gentrification and Diversity, Rebranding Milan's Chinatown. This book was published by Springer in 2023 and is part of the Urban Book Series. So, Lydia, welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, It's great to have you here with us. Maybe you could start by introducing yourselves to our listeners. Johanna. Um, So, my name is Lydia and I am actually currently connected from Milan University, uh, this is the last play, job place where I landed uh, as many, I would say, early career researchers. Um, so I have a PhD in sociology and I did my doctoral study uh, in Brooklyn and I was affiliated with CUNY University, City University of New York, uh, back, I would say, about more than 10 years ago. It was the beginning of the 2010th. Uh, and then I cooperated a little bit with the University of Amsterdam on an ERC housing uh, research, housing and welfare research. And I did most of my um, postdoc time in Ireland, where I have been working with the Department of Geography at Menut University. And then I landed back in Milan with my Marie Curie Fellowship uh for two years from 2020 to 2022 so basically i would say that i'm in between sociology and geography and i think it's very usual uh even just by looking at the literature at the theories we address and when i say we i want to say people uh working and studying in the field of gentrification um, and currently, I am assistant professor at the Department of uh, Languages, Culture and Mediation at the University of Milan. So you traveled quite a bit for work, didn't you? I think it's also very good, you know, if you want to study different urban landscapes. And I am an ethnographer, mainly. So I use qualitative methods. Uh, I can use also quantitative methods. I don't think I have a spe- any specific talent for statistics. 
<laughs> but I, I do understand it. <laughs> um, but you know, if you want to understand, especially at the micro level, uh, urban processes uh, of inequalities of change, you need to travel the world at least a little bit, you know, to experience it, not just you know to address data or theories or policies. But your book is about Chinatown in Milan. So why why this place? How did this project uh, come about? Uh, this is a little bit funny and ironic, and I think that the people that really know me in person, you know, can understand that this is really like my character when I do research. Um, I also think it's quite ethnographic again, I would say, um, because. I started uh, researching in the Milan's Chinatown during my bachelor degree, actually. And then I went ahead deeper uh, with the ethnography during my master degree research. Uh, but actually, there, there was like, um, I don't know what to say, uh, how to say in English, um, uh, when you have like a, um, that, that kind of TV or... TV script where you go, you go back in time with the, with the images. Yes, a flashback. There is a flashback in the ethnography uh, of more than 10 years before I ever started the bachelor degree research um, because I used to work for the city council. Uh, I, I've been working for them for quite a long time. Uh, in the communication in the press office. But at the time, it was 2001, so the very beginning of the 2000s. So also uh, for the people that will read the book, it's like it's the very beginning of, I would say, the tertiarization of Milan City. So like a big change from industrial to post-industrial. Anyway, at the time, I was asked to... Um, to follow a project for the, the population census. So we have 10 years population census. And back in 2001, it was still uh, done in person. So now it's, it's a different way of doing it. Uh, and so I, I was assigned to, to the Milan's Chinatown. So I was actually going actually you know, door by door and meeting people, a lot of elderly but also a lot of young Chinese. Most of the time, there were children uh, filling in the census forms because they were the only one in the family to be there because maybe the parents were just working or to know better the language and the writing. So I had these very, very vivid images of the culture of that pocket of the city that was pretty different from other uh, areas of the inner city areas of the city because we don't actually have uh, spatial segregation, ethnic spatial segregation in Italy because of the housing market, because of the way our cities are structured. Uh, but we can say that usually migrants don't live uh, in the city center if the city center is like a structure like in Milan, where you, you usually have like basically institutions or very, very rich people in the city center. And the more you spread out, the more you have like lower classes and the migrants. Uh, so that was the flashback. And uh, during my bachelor 
degree, I wanted to address uh, something that has to do, you know, you don't really have like a specific idea, but I wanted to address something that could be like an analysis of uh, a neighborhood in the city of Milan. And I was still working in the Milan press office. So I was doing my job, my daily job, and I was kind of, you know, observing news uh we we call like agencies but like it's like it's news reports that are online 24 hours a day and you have this this in your in your laptop and and i was constantly saying oh there is a news about chinatown oh there is a riot in the chinatown oh what's going on in the chinatown so i said oh this is very oh this, this is very italian i know but this is very interesting because especially the chinese people in Milan, but I would say all over Italy, I would even say all over the world, are depicted as a very silent community. You know, those that work and they don't disturb, more or less, that was the narrative. And to see like news brought, you know, about in the Italian Milanese media, uh, talking about a conflict, a riot in the city. So I had a first-hand uh, news and then experience by going there about the fact that two, three hundred people were just uh, exploding in a Chinese people were exploding in a public riot in the middle of the main street of the Chinatown in Milan. And so from that specific point, I started analyzing for the bachelor degree, uh, I would say only at the meso level, so you can have like a micro, uh, a meso, like in between level and then a macro one. So I started analyzing more or less the institutional uh, discourse of especially the media representations between three main actors at the time, uh, Italian residents, a Chinese entrepreneurs, and the local government, so the city uh, council of Milan. So without now ex uh, delving uh, exactly into those dynamics, that was the beginning of the research. And then uh, in the next two years, I decided to, to use the same case study for my master's degree research that was more in that, that was more micro. Um, it was an ethnographic study, and then I continued, I would say, for 15 years to, to study. And this book is actually the outcome of this very, very long. Also, sometimes I, um, I, like, I like the re-editing of some very, very early writings that I, uh, that I produce at the very, very, very beginning of my career. Um, because I found them sometimes very, I wouldn't say uncritical, but like only, only looking at one picture in a moment of time. So I think also the book explores the idea of placing processes of urban regeneration, gentrification, or transformation on, on a longer timeline to be able to say something more on a theoretical level, on a policy level. Uh, maybe you could develop this idea a bit more because uh, uh, you told us why Milan's Chinatown is such an interesting place empirically and historically, uh, but where do you see its importance for 
urban studies, urban sociology, geography? I also think that there aren't up to this time many studies about gentrification in Milan. Um, there are a couple of scholars that have been working on Milano Isola, um, which is another another area. It's also quite close to the Chinatown. It's in the I would say the northern part of Milan, and historically we have like our Milanese arbor uh, within the very old uh, Leonardo Canals design, uh, more like in the central part uh, that has been gentrified since the 80s. Um, but other than that, nobody else was actually talking about uh, gentrification I, I would say, I mean, they, they were not studying gentrification specifically in Milan. Uh, so I think this is one interesting point, especially if I think back um, when I published the first articles about the Milan's Chinatown, it could be uh, it could be 2009, 2010. So it's almost 15 years ago. Um, it is also interesting comparing to the Anglo-Saxon literature. Uh, I don't want to say that it's like it, it, it is very interesting also to address other case study like in the so-called global south. But at the time to look at southern Europe case studies, other than maybe Barcelona or Athens, uh, there weren't so many. So it is also interesting, you know, to contribute to gentrification literature with these cases that actually translate, and this is also important, translate in English, you know, in a language that can be understood by most of the scholars, uh, something that is happening in Italy, you know, uh, as a matter of in contributing to the body of literature. Uh, I think that is also a very interesting in terms of addressing the way immigration policies are structured in Europe and especially in Italy and try to, um, to build on the argument of why diversity is, uh, can be considered paradoxical or can be considered another tool to build up gentrification in, in a city. Uh, and I think there were other very, very, very good um, contributions, but I, to my knowledge, it wasn't addressed diversity in Italy or in the Southern European, in another Southern European country. So I would say these are like the most interesting point of the book. I agree. I actually found this observation that you make uh, uh, in the book very interesting that usually uh, scholarships talks about immigration and gentrification as these kind of two processes that prevent each other. But you challenge this view. And could you maybe talk a bit more about this contribution? First of all, in Europe, there has been since the 2000 the debate about multicultural spaces, urban spaces, uh, 
especially again in the Anglo-Saxon world and so I mean like the UK mainly but also the Netherlands um, Belgium and all these uh, parts of Europe and this multiculturalism has, always, has also been like um, very much contested and criticized because it's basically we we have witnessed in in a change also in the EU government in 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 their traditional immigration policies uh, and attitudes, I would say, uh, in terms of the narratives and the representations, um, in order to rebrand their cities to rejuvenate their economies, in terms of you know uh, appealing to. Uh, younger professionals, students, uh, and in order to um, to make this move, uh, they they have applied what what is called multicultural agendas to to those policies. But actually, this is not a way to um, to provide uh, meaningful diversity in the city. This is a, is, is is again is, a, is another way to um, to apply neoliberal culture-led uh, urban regeneration strategies, uh, urban policies. They are also called entrepreneurial um, policies, just to be again more and more um, uh, evident uh, in this way. Uh, when I say that it's not really providing meaningful, like, meaningful diversity, uh, in the book I try to um, uh, to to make a link between the the theories of convivial spaces, uh, spaces of encounter. The city is a, is, is a space of encounter, and especially if we want to talk, and I have on my back uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan uh, picture. is a map of Brooklyn and Manhattan. I, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't not to mention Jane Jacobs' ideal of encountering people, of that sort of everyday... Um, uh, everyday opportunity to experience genuine diversity, um, maybe sometimes also through clashes, but it's that kind of right to the city to to have the opportunity to shape it and to have a voice and participate. Um, I wouldn't say that this convivial space, this opportunity to to experience diversity, is actually what is. Uh, included in that very uh, re regulated rules rules um, idea of we want to have like that very nice Chinatown neighborhood or we want to have that very nice uh, I don't know theme park uh, where you can try Middle East food and that sort of thing only because you know you might have to rule uh, I don't know Muslims groups in the city and so on and so forth or the Chinese entrepreneurs uh, in the in the Milan case uh, so it's not an idea of giving meaning to diversity because the diversity has its own meaning and everybody you know, can also uh, own a different meaning uh, 
uh, to this concept, but it's more the idea of having the right to experience and the right to participate. Yeah, and maybe now uh, is a good time to talk a bit more in detail about Chinatown. What's going on there? Uh, who are the stakeholders that you studied and what are the tensions in the neighborhood that are so interesting? Uh, I also, let me see if I can find it. Okay. In, in the very introduction of the book, there is, a, I think, um, it's a nice diagram also because I redraw a diagram from Sharon Zukin book. So that, that's why it's a very nice one, uh, where I actually rearrange her categories um in the one that were exactly like the i would say the character of the ethnographic story of this gentrification case in milan chinatown and so the um, i would say that the, the three component uh are store are the store owners both italian and chinese and then the residents mainly italian and mainly elderly people uh, situation has been changed since 15 years ago, but more or less is still more elderly than young couple or students. Uh, and then we have, of course, city users, uh, shoppers. Uh, within this, uh, within this, I would say um, three main actors. Um, we also have like the intersection of in the, in this ecosystem we have the intersection uh, intersecting actions of the media uh, of different neighborhood associations so again we are at the meso level of urban policies shaped mainly by the city government we have a, an elected city government in milan in other countries is different but we have that level of governance uh, with the mayor and everything, and and then I would say urban development, real estate interest. Um, so these are the main actors, and now I am taking a look at the diagram you can find in the book, which is a, a timeline, um, and within this timeline, I try to I try to use the timeline to theorize. Uh, I would say uh, a long-term process of gentrification that spans uh, from the 80s, the ninth, beginning of the 90s, up to now, more or less. And so before addressing the, the Chinese riots of 2007, that was the, the one I mentioned before, the, the beginning of my research during my bachelor degree, uh, we have to um, understand a little bit of context. Also, I stress this contextual uh, part and dimension in the book, which is, in my mind, very important. And this, again, has historical uh, interest and significance. So you, you, don't, you don't, don't just try to understand the very context in the very moment in time, but you try to place uh, a transformation, what is happening maybe today in a longer uh, picture uh, in terms of the temporality of the process. 
Um, and so there was already an embryonic gentrification in Milan Chinatown since the end of the 90s. And that was more like uh, that process from industrial to post-industrial Milan. Milan as this... Uh, is the Manhattan? I know. I know other people, other Italian scholars that are from other cities in Italy are going to uh, hate me, maybe. But Milan is the engine of the country. Has been always very industrial and is now very much corporate city. So that's the shift. Uh, so during the end of the of the eighties and up to the two thousand. Um, the cities also witnessed this um, decline in artisan activities, as in many other cities. Um, and those first Chinese migrants from the 90s, again, a very, very small parenthesis, we also have to intersect a, a Chinatown in Europe with the, uh, with, I would say, like, migration policies of China mainland. So at the time, during the 90s, they had like a political window that allowed them to exit the country. Uh, then they, they couldn't for a number of years. And then now there is a different migration, for instance, coming from China. So at the end of the 90s, 80s, they were able, you know, to migrate, and some of them arrived in Europe, and some of them arrived in in Italy, and especially they come from the Zhejiang area, uh, which is a very, very entrepreneurial uh, part of China. So they tried to apply here what they were doing very well in China, being entrepreneurs. So it is something that is in their habitus, their commercial habitus, I would say. Um, so they started, they, 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 they found the economic opportunity to replace uh, those workshops from the artisan activities that were declining in Italy, in the city center of a city like Milan. Um, and they were replacing mostly by um, setting up wholesale activities. Uh, in the book is very visible uh, how the Milan Chinatown is very, very close to the very city, monumental city center of the city. So you can imagine, like, it's, a, it's also a, um, it's the morphology of a village. Uh, so there is one main shopping street and another one that's crossed where you have, like, a tram uh, pathway. Uh, of the tram transport line and then everything else is like small side streets so to handle a wholesale uh, kind of turnaround in terms of uh, a lot of cars and trucks and cardboard and you know big window full of boxes would have would have actually been not a very, very um, functional later on. But at the time, they started and they got the opportunity, you know, to to buy licenses, uh, commercial licenses and so on and so forth. So around the 2000, the other actor, the Italian residents uh, and also Italian shop owners on the main street of Paolo Sarpi, of Chinatown, which is called Via Paolo Sarpi, 
started discussing this this Chinese wholesale trade because it was very much unfunctional and also creating a lot of dirt. The aesthetics of being dirt in in a in a city in in Milan, and you know, uh, I. I also ironized a little bit in the introduction with Milan as a fashion and design capital. Uh, you know, is is not really is not really proper uh, for migrants. And uh, <clears throat> what happens at the time during the the riots of the 2000s, it was that the local go- government started to find. Uh, Chinese wholesale traders because maybe they were parking their cars in improperly or because they were using those uh, little carts to to move the boxes that were not good or because they were not respecting the specific time for unloading and unloading so there was all these tensions you know building up in the Chinese entrepreneurs they were doing that for ages and now they were finding find it constantly and so they decided to react and that was very much like a political reaction uh, so they went on the street and they were just you know uh, stopping uh, the public transport movement the traffic and so there were the um, uh, political, uh, vocal political uh, members of the Chinese community speaking with the mayor and all these things. Um, at the time, in the city of Milan, there was a Forza Italia mayor, uh, so the Berlusconi party mayor, uh, so very much on the right wing. Uh, and their response from 2008 onward, it was to apply a zero tolerance policies. So basically, they decided to to address directly uh, by building up what we call uh, ZTL is like it's a limits vehicular traffic zone where only residents can go. So actually. They were uh, doing this to uh, regulate the traffic, but indirectly, they were trying to uh, they were trying to stop in any way possible uh, the commercial activities, the wholesale trade. Um, at the same time, Chinese were trying to resist these policies. And little by little, it, it lasted more or less like five years, they started to move the wholesale activities outside the Chinatown and they, start to, they started to reshape the wholesale trade within different sort of commercial activities. It could be like uh, more devoted to food and drink, like sushi restaurants and this sort of thing. Uh, this is a very, very, very uh, short version of it. But during this time, also, the city decided to pedestrianize. Uh, so before it wasn't a pedestrian area. So the main commercial avenue in Milan Chinatown became a pedestrian area. So more and more uh, activities related to food and drink started. 
from both Chinese entrepreneurs and Italian entrepreneurs. And this was very much uh, an attempt to to uh, transform an ethnic neighborhood in a in some sort of like Chinese theme park, Chinatown theme park, multi-ethnic, because then it's, it's not only attended by Chinese people. It's a very, very peculiar Chinatown, because I would say at the ground level, you can find multi-ethnic shops, and, but at the, at the higher level of the buildings, the residents are 95% Italians. Um, so what actually I don't I don't know if I can reveal the end of the book, but the end of the book actually talks about um, or a lot of future development and regeneration real estate regeneration um, development in that area that made Paolo Sarpi one of the Milan's new landmarks, uh, but also talks about the idea of the extreme and very interesting entrepreneurial skills and capacity of the Chinese um, entrepreneurs, they were, they, that they were actually able to drive instead of being driven by those direct and indirect gentrification policies by changing their uh, their stores and their shops and actually um, being able to to drive food and drink and I would say the new movida in the Chinatown while the old Italian store owners and and entrepreneurs were mostly maybe most of them they were like old old mom and pops uh, shops they were actually not not a, they, they were not able to to stay in this process and they had to close or sell and this sort of thing and what about resistance to to these processes to this redevelopment who resisted how and like why could you talk a bit more about that I think that in, also in the diagram is very visible how you know from embryonic gentrification uh, gentrification really skyrocketed after the pedestrianization and I would say that before the pedestrianization there was uh, a lot of like the conflict the tensions was really uh, between uh, Chinese entrepreneurs and Italian residents and that was interest. It was interesting for me to observe that because at the time I was still working at the Milan City Council in the press office, so I had this like distance, but also I, I was I was both an insider and an outsider. So I tried to be an outsider to distance myself uh, to analyze the process, but also I was actually working for the very government. And I could see how the actual tensions that could be like, you know, the Chinese are constantly open, so we can't sleep in our 
uh, in our houses, you know, this could be like the voice of, of the Italian residents. And uh, this is not a quiet neighborhood anymore, or there is a constant traffic congestion in downstairs and so on and so forth. And at the same time, the Chinese entrepreneurs would say, we bought our licenses, uh, so everything was like done properly, and now they are telling us that, they, that we, can't, we can't deal with our um, businesses anymore, and so on and so But actually, I was observing these attentions. There was a way <laughs> from the city government to actually and directly drive the tensions between two actors where, while actually this, this is, is, is another case of state-led uh, process of gentrification is led, the, the state here is the local government. So for a couple of years, the, um, the city council actually made the two actors, the residents uh, and the Chinese entrepreneurs to to deal with each other in conflict um, until the point in which with the pedestrianization that lasted two years. So within those two years, everybody was just suffering for having like a destroyed uh, pavement uh, downstairs and no possibility to access any, I don't know, the butcher, the... Uh, or the bakery, uh, and then the noise, and then the pollution. And so actually during that time, it was very evident to everybody that the main actor driving the process and the transformation was the city council. Um, so I, I, I think I, I, lost, I lost the question. I don't know if I answer your question. Um, but I think the tension, it was up an apparent tension between like practices of conviviality, but uh, it was actually more like, uh, again, some sort of strategy of the local government to deliver gentrification. Nobody would call gentrification policies, I would say. We never know. Um, and I think this is this is also very interesting in terms of understanding, um, I don't know, the role of the researcher. I don't know if you want me to... Yes, definitely. This was actually my next question to you because you talk about being an activist scholar, right? So could you maybe develop this idea a bit more, elaborate on what that means and what your... How do you see the practice of being an activist scholar in this case? I didn't realize that in the beginning. <laughs> um, I, I think it's also good from time to time, you know, to, um, to stop doing research and, and think about what you have done in the past, maybe, you know, to situate yourself within your practice. Um, and by the way, a parenthesis, uh, I wrote this book while I was doing another project. So sometimes I think it's good to, I don't know, you, uh, especially for such a long-term uh, research project, you know, it's not always funded. So let's, let's call it a project. Um, it is difficult, you know, to 
to be critical about the process itself and about yourself as a researcher. So sometimes while you have finished it, I would say I never finish in ethnography, but then, you know, when you're working on something else, um, you can understand things that you, you have done in the past. So I don't know if this is only me or it's uh, usual. Um, so I realized that I, I have done uh, activist um participatory or activist uh, sort of research uh, after the production of a documentary out of the research. Um, so again, one step back during uh, my master's degree, I was, I was doing the ethnography that lasted more than a year. Uh, so I was trying to participate in different neighborhood events and initiatives and interviewing people and having like, uh, I would say, I wouldn't say like a daily relationship with them because I had another job, but I was there every every week and every time I could, you know, speak to them at the phone and so on and so forth. Um, and while doing that, I got really pissed off by the way uh, the media were uh, representing the case of the conflict. Uh, so again, you know, the media in Italy <laughs> are very much politicized. So they were addressing some sort of like, other than a couple of newspapers, but, you know, very racist uh, sort of arguments to, against the Chinese entrepreneurs and the migrants in general. Uh, and how we don't want this kind of society in Milan and in Italy. And it was the time of a very, very young Lega Nord leader, Matteo Salvini. And so all this uh, extremely right uh, racist discussion was going on and so I said okay maybe while I am interviewing people I can just try to rec video record them and I did it and it was the very first experience back in 2008-2009 of ethnography for me I didn't know that I would have ended up with so much data, qualitative data, data as it would be no tomorrow to analyze them. And, you know, you have a supervisor, but actually you have to deal with your own ethnographic data. And so I, I found just because of, I'm very visually, my mind is very visual, I don't know, maybe that's the point. For me, I decided to edit the documentary before analyzing the, the ethnographic data. So by editing a documentary trying to, that tries to outline the different characters and the tensions and also to represent the urban landscape, social and economic landscape, uh, I reordered, I would say, into my mind the ethnographic data that I collected. Uh, so this is like the production of the ethnography that can be visual, can be, you know, only written. But as soon as I had the documentary, I went public with it. 
So I participated in a number of uh, meetings, even abroad, because I subtitled it in English, so I was able, you know, to show it abroad. Uh, but mainly in Milan, and a lot of different neighborhood initiatives were organized to to showcase the case. Uh, and so that was a very, very good uh, way to make, um, I would say, marginalized actors in the process of gentrification to have a voice, to participate, and... Again, it was like a first attempt also of doing any documentary. I didn't have any any practice, uh, any any skills on doing that. So it was more like the, the director. So there were other people working on the media stuff. But it was it was a way for me to understand that I had a position that was like to go public with the research and to outreach. Uh, so communicate the research, but also provoke discussion and critique. And so that was my first understanding of being an activist. And now, I don't know, 15 years later, is still working like that. It's, it's even more deeper, I would say, in the, in the discussion about uh, impact of urban transformation that could have like health impact uh, on marginalized people and these kind of things. Right. I wonder if you could also talk a bit more about the actual, like those huge urban transformations that were happening in the neighborhood. Uh, also in terms, you have this interesting binary or rather like opposite poles on the spectrum between what you call meaningful diversity and the I'm going to read it because it's such a nice way of phrasing it, the damaging aestheticization of diversity. So what are those? What is the tension here also conceptually? Yeah, I think aesthetics has to do also, at least in my view, with the idea of authenticity and how authenticity and aesthetics desires of income, incoming population, middle upper class population in a neighborhood plays out. Um, so in the literature, other scholars address uh, diversity as, as a way you know, to, to have a proper diversity in, in neighborhood that are going under the process of gentrification or already gentrified. So diversity, it is something that gentrifiers desire because they actually, it, it appeals to them uh, in terms of, you know, having a specific, uh, I don't know, multi-ethnic shops, multi-ethnic restaurants and places where they can taste, I don't know, I, I was doing the, um, the example before, a Middle Eastern pastry, uh, or they might found those very, very nice, I don't know, uh, um, Chinese food, uh, street Chinese food, maybe during a concert, maybe during like... Um, 
some sort of like street uh, street event. But they also fear diversity, and I'm still talking about gentrifiers, when this diversity threatened them in terms of the idea that they can't control it. Uh, so like, again, like the wholesale trade, uh, that is not, is, not, is not exactly something that could, could be uh, dangerous. And I'm laughing under my mustache, we would say in Italian, uh, because they're in the beginning of the gentrification contestation in the Chinatown, there, there was all this narrative in the media about, you know, the China, it was like, very, very old narrative about Chinatowns as, as a dark place where, you know, people could get killed and they would disappear and all these kind of things. So it's not that kind of diversity that threatened them in a dangerous way, but even just the, uh, the fact that it's like it's a spontaneous diversity that Jane Jacobs ideal, that convivial uh, space of encounter ideal that is genuine, genuine in a city, in an urban landscape that is just happening. That is not good. So the paradox of diversity is that gentrifiers got really appealed, uh, got uh, interested by colonizing a place, especially early gentrifiers, that appeal to them because it gives them a flavor of something different and diverse. But as soon as they arrive in this place, they try to reshape the rules by having a very, very uh, proper uh, outlet of diversity that is controlled. And I would say Tissot, for instance, is a, is a French scholar. She really talks about this controlling, loving diversity, but also controlling diversity. But by controlling diversity, they actually uh, create something that is, un, I wouldn't say unnatural in an essential terms, but that is not genuine, is not just happening, but is, is kind of fake. And so there is all the discussion about, you know, um, kind of um, not having like um, losing the souls of a neighborhood just by having like the perfect representation of what they like about diversity. Um, so I think I, I answer your question. Sure did. I think it's a very interesting dynamic and I also think our listeners should read the book to learn more about that because you, you really provide uh, very good discussions and uh, outlines of these debates. Uh, I also like what you said earlier that ethnographies never stop. I wonder, uh, have you actually completed this project? Are you still uh, keeping an eye on the processes in uh, Milan's Chinatown and what are you working on now? I would say that in 15 years of service, <laughs> I have done three big ethnographies and I'm still in touch with the main, uh, I would say, gatekeeper, main contact of the ethnography. Uh, so the first one was in Milan, Chinatown. The second one uh, 
was in Brooklyn's Park Slope for my doctoral dissertation. And the third one is in uh, inner city neighborhood of Dublin uh, called the Liberties. And nowadays I'm also trying to get funded and then I will talk about that later on an, a different case in Milan. Uh, but since these three larger projects and in Brooklyn, it lasted two, I said, I'm going to stay away from home for six months. It lasted two years. And then I went back for specific follow-up studies. And then I have people constantly uh, texting me from Dublin. And I don't know, Dublin is also because of it's very proximate, you know, with the flight from Milan. It's a kind of a second home. Um I think there are many ways to do qualitative research, uh, but when you develop meaningful relationships with some, not all of them, but some of them, uh, some participant of your ethnography, it is very difficult, you know, just to say, okay, I've finished, you know, I, the interview is finished, I am going home. Um, and it's the same, I was like in touch with the, like, I don't know, the Residence Association in um, chair in the Milan's Chinatown the other month, uh, also because of the book. And then, so I'm going to go back maybe to, to present it in the neighborhood. It's more like, I would say, taking responsibility for the research you do. Uh, especially because it could be called gentrification, financialization, or other sort of uh, conceptualization. This is um, urban inequalities uh, kind of processes, and it's uneven development. And so you always have to, uh, I would say, you're addressing inequality and as an academic, you have to be responsible for it. This doesn't mean, you know, to to bring um, fieldwork relationship all over your life. Uh, but I would say this is this is maybe the way I do, and I know for sure that other very important academics they also do, and I like very much. Uh, for instance. Uh, a French anthropo urban anthropologist, his name is Philippe Bourgoise, and he has developed uh, his work since, I don't know, like the 80s in El Barrio in New York, and is developing a lot of like connected research. Um, you also made a lot of investment when you do an ethnography in terms of energy, of course, finance, a lot of personal money, and but it's not. It's, it's never strategic. It's just because I also have fun doing it, so that's also part of the decision, you know, to keep uh, feeling responsible. <clears throat> and in terms of what I'm doing nowadays. Um, I mentioned that my last large project, it was uh, funded by a EU Marie Curie uh, scholarship, uh, fellowship. Uh, it was about a project that I designed before COVID in 2019, and I got funded uh, in February 2020, right one week before 
COVID lockdown <laughs> broke out, especially in Milan City. But that's the story of my life. So that's another thing. It's my karma. I don't know. Um, and the project is about uh, a conceptualization of a city of care approach to urban research in vulnerable areas of the research. So I shifted a little bit from, so again, it's always urban inequality, uh, but I shifted my point of observation from middle upper class people, the gentrifiers, uh, toward, I would say, vulnerable communities, especially social housing communities, public people living in public housing. Uh, and I, I designed a city of care before COVID and I conducted the entire research during COVID. So I actually shifted my idea of care. And now everybody talks about care, but it was also useful, you know, for me to understand other points of view, uh, other perspectives. And nowadays I'm trying to uh, put forward this um, city of care model that address care, housing and health. So the impact of poor housing in terms of both physical, badly maintained poor housing when the, the owner is a public owner and also the impact on mental health of socially disadvantaged uh, communities that are usually stigmatized around social housing. And I know you have interviewed Paul Watt uh, for his most recent book and I think uh, it was really like, it's really into this discussion uh, greatly. Uh, all of this sounds extremely interesting. And I think we can now, uh, myself and the listeners, look forward to your next book, <laughs> hopefully on uh, the concept of city of care in the future. Uh, but we also uh, are slowly running out of time. So I want to thank you, Lydia, again, for taking the time to talk about your book. And best of luck in your next endeavors. Thank you, Hannah. Hi, everyone. Bye, everyone.